0: Hi everybody, it's Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Another fantastic sunny early autumn day, but winter is coming. Um, And in the UK we're seeing a horrible second spike of um, COVID cases, a real threat of a second lockdown. Only this time we're going to be locked down in the middle of a grim, grisly grey British winter. And so Feeling a bit gloomy, to be honest, about the next few months. But never mind, I have a second life online. Um, the blog's been doing brilliantly under lockdown. Obviously, lots of other people have nothing better to do either. So let's get on to the posts, uh, this week's posts. And we had some really, uh, we had, I think, some really good ones um, this week, most of them not written by me. So we started off with uh, a really interesting campaign proposal by one of my LSE students, Lachlan Hill, who... Um, has this, he's he's stumbled on a brilliant nudge, which is air conditioning manufacturers set their air con um, uh, machines um, at a particular default temperature. And most people don't change it, right? And what he found was that most people, uh, most air con manufacturers, set their um, uh, machines really cold to keep the room really cold. And that uses a phenomenal amount of energy. When he crunched the numbers... He realized that if you could raise the default setting to 25 degrees, you would globally, you would save as much carbon as is produced by 100 coal power stations. So that is, you know, it's, it's a brilliant thing in that it, it doesn't take much effort. Uh, 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 and uh, if you can convince air conditioning uh, air conditioner manufacturers to do that, you, know, you don't need to talk to governments It's a it's a fantastic nudge. Uh, There's uh, there's even a gender angle in that um, turns out the people who decide the default settings are men because men prefer cold and women prefer warm and women are actually more productive at higher temperatures. Um, They perform best apparently at 29 degrees centigrade compared to men at 20. So you've got patriarchy in temperature. Uh, So fantastic post. Uh Lackland's obviously an innovator he he's the first person on my course to present his full assignment as a PowerPoint slide deck uh, and he got brilliant marks because it was a really good campaign around this issue so do have a look at that do sign up he's on he's got he's already got some sort of 999,000 people have signed up and he needs about you know 200 to get to a million so I think a few of you could help him get to that the second post was on a uh, was a write-up of a panel I was in uh, I was on last week uh, webinar, needless to say not real life um, on why are illegal drugs still a Cinderella issue in development?" and this is the point that for years people have been saying, well, illegality of drugs actually makes things worse, so it makes it introduces you know it, it, it pumps up this huge criminal network. The illegal drugs uh, trade is estimated at around $500 billion, which buys you a lot of corruption, a lot of politicians, a lot of disruption. Um, The fact of making it illegal uh, creates violence, creates gangs. Um, It makes it harder to get a decent deal for the small farmers who grow things like opium poppy, cannabis, um, uh, coca in the Andes. So it's basically, it's a really rubbish idea. But people have been saying this for ten years, and in particular, very few big development organisations have taken it up. Even though it's a huge issue which affects millions and millions of people, it's not. It's a Cinderella issue. It's not being picked up. And so I, I was on a panel with people who know far more about the issue than me, and all I did was reflect on why hasn't it been picked up? And when I have a kind of why has change not happened? Question, I usually think of it in terms of ideas. Institutions and interests, and it's quite often useful to unpack. So, on ideas, you've got a century of prohibition which has said, you know, drugs are illegal, they must be banned, and that makes it really unhelpful if you want to talk about development. For example, the people you would want to be around the table to talk about solutions are stigmatized, they're drug growers, drug users or drug, drug traders. Um, so that makes it very hard to actually have a a proper inclusive conversation, which would be the obvious approach to sorting this out. You've got this thing where people talk about drugs as if they're fundamentally different, a separate, uniquely harmful substance, but you just step back and you think, well, hold on a minute. Tobacco kills 10 times more people than all illegal drugs put together. And yeah, let's not talk about alcohol. Um, that doesn't mean you should make tobacco illegal. It means it's really hard to say drugs are just one, yeah, a, a one special category. And what you should be able to say is, well, look, farmers grow drugs. They also grow potatoes. They grow other things. Yeah, let's look at how they fare in the supply chain. Let's just treat drugs as a crop. But you can't do that because they've got this enormous aura around them of, you know, are you being soft on drugs? Can you talk about drugs? So you get this lock them up or wipe, out the, you know, or wipe them out mentality towards drugs. So that's the ideas bit. The institutions bit, I did a little Twitter poll um, asking people why they think drugs remain such a Cinderella issue and got about 200 replies. And the overwhelming response was reputational risk that the NGOs or the big um, bilateral aid agencies don't want to work on this because they don't want to be tainted by association. They see it as a poisoned chalice. Yeah, you know, could get them into trouble with the Daily Mail saying, look, if it approves of drugs um, or the authorities, um, you know, you might get into trouble on counterterrorism, money laundering, lots of risks everywhere in talking or working on drugs. And then finally, interests. I couldn't see a lot of interest, except there's one really obvious one. $500 billion buys you a lot of politicians. So if I was a drug lord, which is not an easy you know, thing to get in my head, but if I was, I would think, well, I don't want these things to become legal uh, or to be regulated. That would actually ruin my business. So I'm going to shovel some money to some politicians or decision makers to make sure it doesn't happen. But I've seen no evidence of that. But it just would seem if if legal regulation became a real thing, um, you'd expect that to happen. But then the conversation with the other people who, on the panel was interesting because they said, Well, yes, okay, that's all true, but the ground is shifting, especially on cannabis. There's been over 50 countries have moved to legally regulate it over the last few years, especially for medical use. Uh, the international system is kind of lagging behind, but some institutions like UNDP are getting involved, some INGOs like Health Poverty Action, which was one of the organizers of the webinar, Christian Aid. Human rights community, Amnesty's going big on this, Human Rights Watch. So people are coming on board. Um, and then there was another really interesting angle, which I've, I've always thought that if you make drugs legal, the first people who are going to get squeezed off could be the small farmers because big plantations are going to come and start growing cannabis or coca. Turns out that is actually starting to happen. So the private sector is rushing in to occupy the new markets. And actually, that may not be a good deal for small scale traditional Traditional producers, so uh, interesting sort of warning on that. Overall, it felt like the debate on legal regulation of drugs is a bit like the regulation on uh, the discussion on migration, on international migration. You've got a bunch of economists saying it's obviously good for everyone. Why don't you stop trying to regulate it? Um, Yeah, stop trying trying to block it. Um, And a bunch of politicians saying don't be silly. Um, And you've got. But over time, the sort of steady drumbeat of evidence has had some effect on the discussion on migration. And the, for me, one of the best organizations on this is the Center for Global Development. So I just put as a cheeky um, you know, end note on the blog. Come on, CGD. This is a perfect example of a, a, an issue you should be adopting. It's got a compelling economic and political logic. Everyone else is too scared to touch it. That's your comfort zone. Get in there. So let's see if CGD picked that up third post of the week, I went back to my uh, my students at LSE. Their, their assignment is to come up with a campaign strategy, as I was talking about in the case of Lachlan and his um, air conditioning strategy. And they get a choice to either write a blog or do a video blog, a vlog. And um, there were some really funky vlogs this year. So I just put three of them up there and ask each of the students to explain how they did it, because it's all beyond me. Um, so I had Nierika Agawal, who had a campaign to encourage carpooling in Delhi and displayed an encyclopedic knowledge of really rubbish pop songs. Um, Firman Lund tackled mental health in Indonesia in what I thought was quite a sort of sensitive, poignant way. And Michael Spencer took on fuel poverty in the UK. So if you're interested in vlogs and how to make vlogs, there's some really good advice and some really good examples up there. Then the rest of the week, I went very wonky. So, not you know, there are whole websites dedicated to impenetrable uh, articles about the inner workings of the aid sector. And I tend to try and avoid that a bit. Um, But I do work in the aid sector and every now and then you read something which is really interesting and deserves to go up. Two things this week. The first was um, a great paper with a great title, The Hidden Life of Theories of Change. So you've got this, you know, another, f- another fad, another fashion, another fuzz buzzword, uh, fuzz word or buzzword in aid, Theories of Change. Um, and this was a really nice piece of work by uh, some researchers uh, for EVOS uh, in, in, in the Netherlands Wenny Ho, Margit van Vessel and Peter Thomas, uh, they, they were looking at um, the role theory of change played in a big citizen empowerment consortium uh, funded by the Dutch government. Uh, and they really And it's a brilliant discussion on the pluses and minuses of theories of change where what was a kind of radical proposal to increase flexibility and adaptability and allow local Staff and local so people close to the to to the actual uh, workings of the program take decisions, adapt, change direction, respond to signals and events, has become a new orthodoxy, uh, and in some people's eyes has become a log frame on steroids. Log frame is the much reviled uh, previous um, uh, a way of describing what you're going to do in an aid program. So there's really good discussion on on that process and what theories of change do and don't contribute and some of the negative developments that have happened as theories of change have become adopted more widely. I'll just give you a couple of quotes from the conclusion. Theory of change seems to be replacing log frames as the non-negotiable starting point in accessing and then accounting for funds. Like log frames, theory of change is presently commonly used to legitimize funding. Applicants are fundable when their theory of change tells donors a story that they assess as convincing. These stories must, with a ritual nod to uncertainty, predict future circumstances, causal relations in those futures, and the impact of their future actions within those futures. A theory of change can therefore be seen as a formal rite of passage only loosely coupled to the competencies required for successful practice or, and this is the path that worries us, the content that finds its way into a theory of change may be misread as capturing all that really matters. This managerial approach to doing development has been the subject of withering criticism for many years. The rise of theory of change was at least partly motivated by these critiques, as it is more sensitive to complexity However, the potential of theory of change is subverted when it is used to improve certainty and taking control. Great summary of what has been worrying me for some years now, and it's prompted some brilliant threads on Twitter, comments on the blog, and a load of of reads. Um, Clearly, FP2P readers are, are wonks at heart and love a good wonk off, which is what you've had in here. And so I just carried on. So the next day, Um, uh, the last post of the week was um, by four evaluators at a a, a governance um, outfit in uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, Institutions for Inclusive Development. So this is Gloria Sikustahili, Julie Adkins, Jafet Makongo and Simon Milligan had tried to summarize their role of doing monitoring and evaluation on a program that is adaptive and so keeps changing. And they have seven takeaways, too long to go through in, in individually. But their key points is they argue that you know, this only works if donors are reflexive about their own power and their own influence. Donors must make choices and recognize the consequences of their signals. So that means that donors have to, you know, the, the experience of people doing monitoring and evaluation in these programs is an avalanche of questions, an avalanche of. Donors say, oh, this would be interesting. And, oh, could you tell me about this? And this becomes an enormous burden and actually stops them doing work, which is more useful. So they're they're saying to donors, please be restrained. Think about what you must know, not what would be nice to know. And that's, I thought, was a a, a very well-made point. Um, And then they say reflection and documentation are two related but very different things. So reflection is what people are doing in the room thinking, well, this worked, this didn't work. And they may well be doing it on the on the hoof, on the go, you know, w- winging WhatsApps or other messages to each other saying, you know, ah, that was terrible. Just talk to the minister. Went down like a, a lead balloon. Let's change the way we talk about this. All this kind of constant fast feedback loop stuff, which is what the, uh, the hidden life of theories of change talks about. Now, if you try and write all that up. And get people to document it. It becomes a huge burden on staff and stops them actually doing the work. So what the uh, what what the four I four ID evaluators decided was that the most successful staff capture and reflection platforms are those founded on real time discussion and action. So you don't say to all that great now write up your week's conversations in this you know Word document. You just record and save WhatsApp threads. So you you save the real raw material and allow people to keep talking in real time. You don't try and transfer everything across to a more slow moving kind of, um, even if donors prefer it, you don't do it. So really good. Uh, I urge you to look at all those posts. I thought it was a great week uh, and talk to you next week.